G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Hey, this is Pastor Jeff. What I find is a lot of people are really interested in pursuing Christ, but there's a few things they believe, Christians believe, that they just can't get their head around. And we're going to deal with those in hopes of helping people discover the truth about Christ and Christianity. Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will break this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Vines Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, we're continuing a message from Pastor Jeff in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. This is part of a new series called The Trouble with Christianity. And Pastor Jeff's aim for this series is to help clear up some things that some people commonly think Christians believe. Whether you've been a Christ follower for a long time, or you're new to Christ, or you're still seeking, this will be a great message to help give you some better understanding about others, and hopefully clear up some of your questions about Christianity. Here's Pastor Jeff with the rest of this message. Now, going back to the passage in Galatians 2, I'm in verse 9 and 10 now. James, Cephas, and John, Peter, James, and John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, that's the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. So let me go back to the context. The first century Jews were not wealthy. They had suffered years of captivity and oppression under the Roman authorities, but the Gentiles were a different story. Many of them had accrued wealth and power under Roman rule. So as Paul goes up to make the defense of the gospel, the gospel of grace, and reiterates this truth that the Jewish believers need to stop this idea of forcing the Gentiles to keep religious rituals that have been fulfilled, totally fulfilled by Christ, Paul convinces the Jews but then they remind him of something. It's almost like they say, Paul, okay, you've convinced us. We're, we're, we're wrong here. We need to straighten up. We need to repent. However, there's something we want you to tell the Gentiles. And that is this. Part of the gospel of grace is that they are to be taking care of the needs of the poor. Okay, they can learn, we can learn something from them, but they can learn something from us. Give them the good news is, give them the good news rather that the gospel is freeing and we're no longer bound by all these rites and rituals But as Christ's followers, ethical norms remain. We are instructed to take care of the poor. So you go up there and you remind those affluent Gentile Christians of their responsibility because of their wealth to take care of the brothers in poverty. 
Yes, we are free in Christ, but that doesn't mean we can live any way we want. You can't spend your money any way you want. You can't commit adultery, murder, lie, steal, cheat. Those things are off limits. So in verse four, we have the idea that we're free, but then in verse 10, we have this idea that we're restricted. And modern people see that and they'll say, wait, I thought freedom is the absence of restriction, the absence of all constraints. And here's my response. No, you don't. And you never have. You're just applying that into a place where it seems convenient. But in reality, you are very well aware that freedom never means total autonomy. There are always restrictions even within freedom. How often does your doctor tell, listen, I'm 56 years old. I know I keep talking about aging, but I hate every moment of it. But I can tell you that my doctor has made it very clear to me. You can't enjoy a long life with your grandchildren and eat Krispy Kreme donuts too. You got to make a decision. You are free to enjoy your grandchildren, but that freedom comes with some restrictions of how you take care or don't take care of your body. One of the reasons I don't ride my bike much anymore is because one of the last times I did, I did without a helmet and ended up breaking both my arms. And my wife came to me and said, you know, I know you are free to ride the bike. You are free to ride the bike, but my advice to you is not to ride the bike. Because if you ride the bike, you're going to end up using your freedom to take away other freedoms that you enjoy, playing golf, hanging out with your grandchildren, maybe going for a run. If you've gone to university or studied for any class or course or paper, you know that you can never succeed in school without saying no to things you really want to do. So you're free to succeed in school, but if you want to be free to succeed and to go your own way, there are certain restrictions you're going to have to apply to your own life to make sure you do succeed and pass the course. You can't have lasting relationships without restricting some of your impulses and movements. You can't be a great athlete without restricting your diet and increasing your exercise. You can't enjoy mobility as you get older and travel and natural experiences if you eat yourself into oblivion. The point is, you know what you're painting is a picture that is impossible. It's logically contradicting. And a livable, happy, fulfilling life always, without exception, includes accepting enormous constraints on your life. Now, someone at this point will say, Pastor Jeff, these restrictions or restraints are the ones I have chosen though. No one chose them for me. I chose them myself. So that still makes me free by my definition of freedom because I'm doing what I want to do. And my response to that is, that is so simplistic because you don't choose these restrictions. They choose you. You submit to restrictions that are already in place. They're already in play because they're based on the limitations of design. So if you want to have a productive and happy life, there are harsh realities you have to submit to that are totally out of your control. You don't choose them, they choose you. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions related to design. Submitting to the restrictions that are in harmony with the design releases you into a deeper, richer freedom. It's like a fish. A fish on land is not able to thrive, but you put the fish in water, look at the enormous freedom and the richness and the deeper the life and the freedom. Now, let me give you the ultimate example. Now, I'm going to bring this third point in here with the gospel. And I told you there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, if you'll just listen. The ultimate example of this is love. Love, it is the ultimate pursuit of mankind. And it is the ultimate freedom, right? Security, hope, intimacy. Talk about what you and I were made for, love. But the beauty and the wonder 
And the freedom discovered in love always means that you have to surrender to certain kinds of restrictions. You know, I think I'd been married maybe six months and one day I went out to get some uh, uh, food at the grocery store. Robin had sent me out and I didn't come back for about three hours because I was passing by the golf course and I thought, man, I think I'll just stop here and play a quick round of golf then go on home. Well, when I got home, my wife met me at the door and she said, where were you? And I think that's when it dawned on me. "Uh Uh-oh, I can't do this anymore. My right to make small unilateral decisions is over forever. Who am I kidding? My right to make any unilateral decision is over forever. And the more intimate your relationship, the less dependent, independent rather, you can be. The only way to get the freedoms of love is to surrender. We're not our own. You know, the Bible tells us that. The two become one. Even our bodies do not belong to us. There's a mutual submission, not mutual isolation. And I'm worried because I see the next generation going into marriage as if they're going to continue to live two separate lives, be married, have children together, but never come together to meet each other's needs. And this will never work. I've had young, so many young women say to me, sorry, Pastor Jeff, but I'm far too independent to get married. And I usually say, okay, then don't get married. And then they'll say, but, but what if I can find somebody that will allow me to be free? What if I can find somebody that we come to an agreement and we say to each other, you know what? We're gonna get married. We're gonna have kids. We're gonna raise a family. We're gonna live together, but I'm still gonna do my thing over here and you're still gonna do your thing over there and we're not gonna be restricted. Now, first of all, let me tell you something. I've seen these type of marriages and they only last for a few months because Ultimately, one of the partners always ends up feeling used and exploited for somebody else's purposes. You always think that you're the exception when you go into a marriage like this, but it never works because love always means doing all that you can to meet the needs of the other. And if you've got one person doing that and the other person not doing that, somebody ends up being used, exploited. But hold on, Jeff, wait a minute. My husband and I, we got married recently and we agreed this is how we're gonna separate lives and separate careers. Can I just say to you, let me tell you something you're gonna learn in marriage. Needs change. You may go into that, but if you don't go into the marriage with plans to adapt and change to meet the needs of your spouse, the marriage will not last because needs and wants and desires change. Love by nature is the great restrictor that leads to the ultimate joys. Ultimate joys? What do you mean, pastor? Yeah. Marriage teaches you the most valuable lesson in humanity, that it is more blessed to give than receive. You can actually find yourself becoming more joyous for someone else's successes and pleasures and fulfillment than that of your own. And if you don't enter marriage with that mutual idea of support and submission, someone will be exploited and used and ultimately the marriage will disintegrate. The deepest emotion pursuit of humanity requires sacrifice and restriction in order to experience love in its ultimate reality and fulfillment. So is truth the enemy of freedom? No. Is freedom defined as the absolute absence of restriction even possible? No, and you know that. Third, how is it then that Jesus is so liberating? How can we say Jesus brings the, the truth will set you free? Now, so important for you, those of you who've been Christ followers for a long time, you've heard this verse before, and I've not been able to deal with it like this. So let's, let's just take the end of the message here and really dive into this. In our culture, this third point is absolutely essential. The gospel writer 
in John 1, 1, writes these words. And by the way, every Greek student, uh, NRK, Lagos, Prostantheon, had to learn this John 1, 1, simple Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. John uses the word logos, translated word, and it is a loaded philosophical term. In Jesus' day, logos came to mean the reason for my existence. Plato, Aristotle, the Greek philosophers continued to ask the question ad nauseum, why are we here? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of my life? What is the logos? What is the absolute reality that if I give myself to it, I will absolutely flourish in humanity? And their conclusion was this. Before John wrote this, their conclusion was, we're not really made for anything. Thus, we are free. There's no design purpose for which we are made. You with me? That's their conclusion. That is Plato and Aristotle's conclusion, not John's. Now, let me just take a time out. That truth claim did not bring freedom to women, children, or the weak or the marginalized. Saying that there is no ultimate reality, ultimate purpose, no meaning in life at all, actually ended up exploiting women and children and exploiting the weak and oppressed. Because the thought was, if there's no God, there's no ultimate purpose. If there's no ultimate purpose, there's no ultimate virtue or nobility. So basically, that means there's no morality Therefore, it's the survival of the fittest. I'm going to do whatever I want to do to whomever I want to do it if it makes me happy to get what I need and what I want. Then along comes John. And his words will transform culture for the next 2,000 years, a transformation into which you're living presently. There is a logos, John said. There is a truth from the very beginning. But to the religious, he says, it's not divine directives which you have to comply The objective of my existence is not to comply with a list of do's and don'ts. That's religion. The purpose of my life is not to adhere to some divine order of some kind that will destroy me unless I follow suit. But neither is it, John says, some abstract truth that can never really be defined or known or experienced. John comes along and he says, the word was God, the word was with God, the word became flesh. John says, the logos is a person. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. The absolute truth of life, the logos, is not a principle, but a person. What then were you made for? To know him, to love him, to serve him, to enjoy him, to experience the God of this universe, to experience the love beyond all loves, to experience a hope and security above all other hopes and dreams. And this was a bombshell to philosophy. We're not relativists. We proclaim absolute truth, but the truth has become a person to know. You say, well, okay, Pastor how does that change things? Well, if truth is an abstraction, it's dehumanizing. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to find something that's not there and it will exploit me, it will use me. For instance, if the logos of my life becomes money, then I'm going to use money in a way that it was never meant to be used. In other words, I'm not gonna put the restrictions on money that are designed by design to be implored. So I'll end up losing my family, my friends, 
everybody because I am pursuing this thing that was never meant to be a God. So when God gives me the restriction of how I use money, he doesn't give it arbitrarily. He's motivated out of love for me that I might enjoy life and enjoy it to the full. Money, sex, power will never do that. There'll be carnage everywhere. But if a person is the logos, if Jesus is the ultimate meaning, it's incredibly liberating. If it's an abstraction, it's dehumanizing. If it's a person, it's liberating. How so? All right, go back. This is the end. Go back to the end. Go back to the idea of love for a moment. If two people give up their independence for each other, if both say, I will surrender to you, I will sacrifice for you in a love relationship, then there's mutual flourishing. What happens if one does and the other does not? If one person holds on to their life and the other gives it up, then the other one is exploited and dehumanized. And that, actually, that would be worse than no relationship at all. Now, that's why religion does not work. And I hope if you've been following, this is where it'll all come together. Religion does not work. Actually, no worldview works because it's all one way. Buddhism says, do this, live by this code, avoid disintegration, achieve nirvana. Allah says, do this, make this journey, achieve these five pillars, face this direction. Do this, keep that, then perhaps you may be accepted. Judaism says, do this, thou shalt not eat this, eat this, don't eat that, give up your independence, keep these rules, make these sacrifices, live by these codes. Nietzsche, remember what he said? Religion, by definition, is dehumanizing, and he's right. But not so with this God. Why? Because God, the absolute truth, became a person and went to the cross. It's all one way, okay. It's his way. He came down. And on the cross, God said, I will lose my independence for you. I will adjust to you. I will sacrifice for you. And he was exploited. Jesus comes to you and says, I already did the surrendering part. I was killed. I already accomplished the surrendering. Now my arms are open to you and I'm asking you to surrender to me. Not that I may lord the authority over you so that you would understand that my precepts are good, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you really want to live the abundant life, a life better than you're having now, then everybody has restrictions. Apply yourself to my restrictions because my truth brings life. Don't you see this? Surrendering to Christ is surrendering to the Father. It's like surrendering to a father that you know always has your best interest in mind. If I say to my two-year-old son Delaney, do not play in the middle of the street, is that controlling or freeing? If I give you a map of how to get from LA to Phoenix, avoiding the potholes and the back roads and the routes that might bring harm to you, have I exploited you or freed you? See, the real issue is not freedom, but trust. And that's why the gospel is brilliant. The God of the Bible seems little interested in you following him out of fear. He desires a love relationship, the logos, the meaning, the purpose of your life has become a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Now stay with me. How does this relate then to restrictions? The law is good. The Bible tells us the law is good. And there are restrictions in the law of God. You take the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments by themselves. The Bible tells us that Jesus met the requirements of the law on our behalf so that now we are free to relate to the law differently, not as a means of salvation, 
but as a means to live the abundant life Jesus came to bring. Do you see this? The law of God now is not meant to restrict you, but to show you the best way, the roadmap to the life that you've been searching for all your life. And you've heard from all these people that Christianity is restrictive, but they've never told you the rest of the story. Any restriction comes from a loving father who always has your best interest in mind, who designed you and knows how best you work in this ultimate creation scenario. Do you want a better quality of life? Hear the words of Jesus, meditate on them, memorize them. They're meant not to restrict, but to free Paul said in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you know at the end of that passage, Paul says to Peter, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you siding with the Jews? And Peter had a little bit of sanguine complex. He wanted to be a people pleaser, so he didn't want the Jews to think that he had abandoned their rituals. Paul comes along and he doesn't say to Peter, In Galatians 2, you're a bad dude, man. Get in line with the law. Keep these precepts. No, he says, Peter, who are you? You are free in Christ. Everything you've ever looked for is in him, not in approval of these Jewish leaders. You are free in Jesus to pursue what is right and what is good. John Newton, the great hymn writer said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoned pardoned voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. What restrictions fit into how you were made, your nature, the truth of who God has made you to be? Man, would you not want to know that? Would that not be like gold? Would it not give you a kind of peace and security and freedom to know where all the U-boats in your life are hiding? so that you can enjoy the freedom of smooth sailing? I think David knew what this meant when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right past for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I couldn't help but to think of the movie I just watched. Even while my enemies are around me, I have the peace and quiet to enjoy fellowship with God. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then he says, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't it interesting? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Folks, truth is not the enemy of freedom. A person not an abstraction, is the way, the truth, and the life. His rod and his staff will actually comfort you because they will give you freedom to thrive within your design. And as a result, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to a God of love who does not give his law arbitrarily, but is always motivated out of love for his people. I pray that there's anyone listening, watching, that this idea that they've had that God is out to be the big, bad cosmic boss and to bind them, somehow their eyes would have been open and they would see suddenly that, wow, these these restrictions are for my own good and they're related to the way God made me and designed. 
And if I use all these wonderful things that God has given me in the way they're meant to be used, I can flourish. Total shalom, human flourishing will be mine. So I pray that this one objection that some may have may now have been answered and they will step forward and give their lives to Jesus and experience what it really means to be free. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.